Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 137 from the archives. Dr. Stuart McGill on back pain in cyclists. This week's episode is a archives episode for two reasons. The first is my computer the last uh, 10 days has had the black screen of death, so it has been uh, in the laboratory to get fixed for the last 10 days, which is not fun. Uh, it actually died on me uh, just before a big year blueprint call, and then in the middle of the big year blueprint call, uh, it died again. So uh, they could see my screen, but I could not. So um, managed to get it fixed here. We'll pick it up hopefully in the next few days. So that's reason number one. Uh, and reason number two is I'm actually spending this weekend uh, alongside Dr. McGill in person uh, at his uh, location in Canada, or is it Canadia? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going to be uh, just getting a chance to do two sessions alongside him and a handful of other McGill practitioners from around the world, uh, mostly Canada, North US, as well as one from Australia, who I'm very excited to meet. Um, so it'll be a really big weekend, and I just didn't have the time with the computer being down and everything else to go through uh, and edit a, a new podcast. And this is also a great one for this time of year. It is uh, the middle of September. This will post here on the, I think, the 19th or 18th of September, Sunday the 18th. So it'll be a really good time for all of you out there to hear about back pain. It's the end of the season. Uh, there are a number of different reasons why we get back pain. And as you'll hear Dr. McGill and I uh, go back and forth here in this episode, the mechanism and the way the injury affects the tissues is different in all of us and how it's injured. And that's why back pain is not like knee pain or shoulder pain or elbow pain. There are so many different forces going on in the spine that relate to how you're moving and how the body is executing the movement that uh, really we, we have to do uh, a really deep dive into that individual. Um, and this is uh, along my path to becoming one of the uh, I think we're up to 52 now, McGill Method Certified Practitioners in the entire world. Um, there are a number of master clinicians. There are truly a handful of those. I think there's six, maybe seven at this point. Um, and I'm very excited to share this episode with you once again. It's an absolute goldmine. All of Dr. McGill's interviews are. Um, and uh, studying over the last 10 years uh, for that test and to become a McGill certified practitioner, especially the last year going into the actual exam was super intense. I flew over to Eindhoven for a long weekend with him, Joel Proskowitz and um, Ed Cambridge uh, to learn again in person. Uh, and in that uh, weekend was when it kind of clicked. I had made a couple comments to Dr. McGill and Joel and um, I think Ed as well, although that weekend I don't think we connected as much. And it was really a confirmation of like, okay, I, I, I can do this. This is, it's hard, but it's supposed to be hard. Uh, and that's what kind of pushed me uh, over to uh, diving down that deep rabbit hole. And it, it really is uh, constant learning. So in my last episode that I recorded here, uh, 136, I mentioned that uh, I'm doing a deeper dive into just a few things and uh, letting some certifications lapse um, that I've held for many, many years. And a lot of that has to do with my, my drive to help uh, cyclists and triathletes over the age of 50. And a lot of that is built around, there's a lot of 
strength training programs out there that aren't necessarily uh, built for cyclists or people who are on bikes for long periods of time and definitely not over the age of 50. Uh, so much so that I spent a year and a half researching uh, all the best practices, all the most current science uh, and approaches for individuals over the age of 50 and then released uh, the Stronger After 50 course, which you can get over on the website. And just uh, two weeks ago, I actually released on Training Peaks the Stronger After 50 program, which is a uh, six-step full-year program that will take you progression to progression to help you move better and get out of pain and be able to put out more watts and get faster, uh, not just stronger in the gym. So this week's intro is being recorded today before uh, I fly out here to see Dr. McGill. And then next week's episode, so the 25th, is going to be the second part, which is be an athlete 24 seven. Uh, and for the intro for that one, what I'll do is make sure to uh, update you guys and share some of the things, some of the observations and thoughts that I had while working alongside Dr. McGill and these few other practitioners, uh, and really share some things that I've learned since we recorded this episode uh, three years ago. And every time I listen to his uh, podcast or his interviews or go back and uh, read through his, his articles that he contributes to, I really learn six, seven, eight, nine, ten new things. Uh, and, you know, the interactions with him and two or three of my other mentors that I've had over the course of the last uh, five, three, five, and, and nine years, uh, aside from Dr. McGill, is really what, what pushed me to just go deeper. You know, having all those certifications is nice, but I'm at a point where I just want to learn more and just be more powerful in a, a one or two very special areas. Um, anyhow, so actually that's a good that's a good uh, jump off into the second part of today's episode, the new part where I uh, kind of give you a catch up on the going ons here at Human Vortex Training. Welcome to the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, science, and all things performance for cyclists and triathletes, helping you be a stronger, more savvy athlete now and for many years to come. Here's your host, Menachem Brody. So lots has been going on here at uh, HVT the last couple of weeks. Uh, we have a couple of the track athletes who have been uh, traveling through Europe and racing through Europe. Uh, I just saw one of them yesterday. He's also a barista. And uh, me and Matan, my son, stopped by and uh, we hung out with him. And he just podiumed at uh, his first race in Europe. Um, he's enjoying racing the Madison, going through technique, uh, learning that. We also have a number of the track juniors who are just now finishing up their transition part of the year and they're all chomping at the bit and very excited to get back to strength training. And that's always a good sign, right? So you've got to take that break away. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, uh, taking that break and taking that downtime and it really renews the fire and allows you to take a step back uh, to see where you are coming from. Uh, we had a great post-season wrap-up meeting with uh, one of the athletes that I work with who's a junior up and coming. Uh, he had some great experiences over in, in Belgium, uh, really had a, some breakthroughs actually after a little bit of a rough season. And it really is, every year it's unsurprising to me that when you coach the athlete how they need to be coached, you really get fantastic results. And this particular athlete didn't need, doesn't need lots of uh, you know messaging and calls so kind of worked with him to get into a groove and figure out without asking him what his groove was and uh, really, you know, coaching him to the best that he is. And that's something that I, I've really found a lot of enjoyment from on the coaching side of things the last couple of years. 
is uh, not necessarily taking on uh, just athletes of uh, one particular type, but ones that are looking for uh, a certain skill set in a coach, somebody who understands the life balance, the life cycle and where they are, as well as injury uh, prevention and being able to train with, around an injury and still get stronger and balancing the strength training in season. Uh, and that's kind of what's been unique, you know, about the uh, the big year blueprint. Uh, I know I've talked about that a number of times here. So the enrollment opened for that uh, two weeks ago here and, and really I've had a couple phone calls and the first two people just were not good fits. And I, I told them, look, you're looking for something that the program I would love to say you're fit for, uh, but you need something different and uh, directed them actually to a different coach. I recommend two different coaches for each of them. And uh, they were kind of shocked. Like, well, I, I would want to be in the program. Yeah, well, let's have you talk to these other two coaches first. Uh, and then if you're still interested, if you don't find one of them to be a better fit, then we can talk about you know what that might look like if we were to come in. And neither of them came back. And I'm ecstatic about that because uh, helping someone find the right coach for them at that point in time uh, is absolutely uh, amazing. It's a great feeling. You're doing right by the athlete. Uh, you know it'll come back later. I've had a couple coaches refer their athletes to me and vice versa. And that's really what, what coaching is all about. Now, on the other side of the coin, a number of the basketball players that we worked with have returned to their uh, preseason. So really heavy training. Some of them are training six days a week. So uh, what we've done is we've dialed back the strength training and really allowed them to go and flourish on the court, uh, which is absolutely fun to see. You know, they say, I'm not really lifting that much in the gym, but I leave the session feeling so much better. And then when we get on the court the next day or when I get on the court the next day, uh, I don't know, I, I just feel better. And that's what it's all about, right? Because some of the other guys who didn't really do the off-season uh, training they should have are hitting the gym hard and they're not being able to move well on the court and it's frustrating for them because they're like, well, I'm putting the work in. It's all about that consistency. So uh, it's really great to see the HVT athletes on the basketball side, on the cycling side, uh, really excel. Uh, got a triathlete and a coach herself uh, down in the southeast uh, U.S. who's been absolutely killing it. Uh, we just simplified her training a bit, uh, had a couple conversations. Hey, how are you feeling with this uh, cycle? I'd like to take you up to maybe eight weeks with this because it's working really well. We're just now starting to load. Uh, and she's seeing some phenomenal growth, both on a coaching side as well as on a personal side and consistency side. And I'm really excited to see how her, her uh, season goes next year because she's really on, on a really great track. And we had to go through some mud, right? We got to go through that uh, process and we have some downtimes, but she's uh, a trooper. She works very intelligently. Uh, she does a great job, you know, filming um, and really keeping us on, on top of things. And, and we get coaching. And she's always asking questions. And, you know, that there's that time for feedback. Again, right athlete, right coach kind of mix. Uh, and the last thing here is uh, it has been uh, very interesting for me. You know, I've been lifting uh, once a week. I've been getting a, a cardio session on the bike once a week as well. Uh, my coach has written me two of each. But that's just life right now. Uh, kiddo's not in pre-K, uh, so that means me and my wife are splitting time. Her job is less flexible than mine. Um, so that means that uh, I get some just fun cardio. Uh, I get to go out on walks with him, taking out on the bike. He absolutely loves it, which has been fantastic. Uh, we rode over to see the Junior uh, World Championships a couple weeks ago. He loved it. Uh, he is just an absolute uh, star uh, when it comes to, you know, physical movement. He loves dancing. He loves singing. He loves fitness. So uh, lots of good stuff. Well, uh, two quick announcements for you before we jump into the interview today with Dr. McGill. Uh, if you are looking for a coach, I am opening up a couple of slots for coaching. Uh, 
two athletes have worked their way through with me and uh, really excited to see that. You know, uh, one of them was very hesitant. He's like, I don't know how to say this, but I think it's time for me to do it on my own. I said, dude, this is fantastic. That is amazing. Uh, so I have two spots from them. And uh, now that uh, my son is older and he's going to be in pre-K, I'm opening uh, the other uh, or three of the other slots that I could have had people, but I just wanted more time for family. So I cut back a little bit. Um, so I'm opening up five slots for coaching, uh, which is a lot. I don't carry that many athletes, so it's quite a lot. Um, but if anybody out there is interested, go ahead and shoot me an email, B as in boy, R-O-D as in dog, I-E at humanvortextraining.com. And uh, we'll set up a phone call and see if it's a good fit. Um, there's the Big Year Blueprint, which is uh, tons of value in there if you're interested in learning and seeing things applied to other people and yourself and really getting your head wrapped around or um, some very limited spots for individual coaching. So if you're interested, uh, go ahead and shoot me an email. We'll set up a time to call. But uh, let's get into episode 137 from the archives with Dr. Stuart McGill, Back Pain in Cyclists. Currently, I guess you're in Waterloo still, is that correct? No, I retired uh, from the university. Well, first of all, good morning or good evening to you, Menachem. But uh, no, I retired from the university a couple of years ago. And uh, when I left the university, I, I just gave away all my books and all my scientific stuff, really thinking that no one would ever contact me again. And I would end up go, going fishing or riding my bike. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm more busy now than, than ever, which is a, a great surprise. But uh, no, I moved uh, up to uh, quite a bit north of Toronto and uh, to a lot of uh, friends and family up here to a small town called Gravenhurst. So that's where BackFit Pro HQ is now. And we're actually in the clinic of, uh, of BackFit Pro. So that's where I live now. Very nice. And uh, BackFit Pro that you mentioned is where uh, folks can visit online, backfitpro.com to get your books if they want to learn more about what we're talking about today and to dive in a little bit more. And we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. But uh, you also have a large number of seminars uh, around the world now with yourself, Ed and Joel. Uh, teaching and helping people get out of pain and and become better clinicians and practitioners. Well, that's the objective. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think we should jump in a little bit with um, <clears throat> the first episode of this podcast was titled "It Depends," and a lot of that, as I've learned on my coaching and, and from yourself as well, is the answer to a question is never simple. It's uh, always "It depends," um, and while this is the answer most of the time. It depends, and there's more clarifying questions. Uh, what are some of the common themes that we see as to why cyclists and triathletes experience back and hip pain? Um, so specifically in mind, uh, I know in the lower back uh, disorders book, we have a couple studies show that sitting in a vehicle for more than two hours, and especially with a forward flexed spine uh, and with vibrations, which if you think riding a road bike or a mountain bike, that's pretty much where you are, uh, the risk of developing a lower back injury or disorder is far higher. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, that's uh, a fair uh, summary of uh, mostly data gathered from uh, aviation, the, uh, the military, and uh, automobile usage, uh, given the vibration component. But I'm, I'm just gonna mention those two words, it depends. It's, it's really uh, the most accurate way we can conceive any answer for uh, a human. So here we have uh, a linkage, which is your body, and it must follow certain rules. Those rules are, are what we call the scientific code. 
And the body lives by those rules. But because we're all variants of humans, some are tall with long lever ratios, others have different lever uh, ratios, etc., uh, etc. Et it's what makes us different that makes this whole game so interesting. And that's what I call the art of good coaching and good training and good therapy. So it really is the, uh, the science from the code combined with the art. And it's those two features that makes the answer always, it depends. Once we understand the peculiarities of that individual, the master will, will converge on what is very best for them. But you get another person who's a little bit different, the answer would be slightly different or, or quite widely different for them. So I love that it depends uh, answer. But anyway, um, let's see. What is uh, some, co some common themes for cyclists and uh, triathletes? Well, you know what the answer is, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, let's start out with what the science suggests, and that is asymmetry. So when we look at some of the large uh, military studies, uh, the, the, the best ones that I know have come from Scandinavia where they measured um, hip uh, symmetry in motion and then hamstring length or tension right to left sides. Those with bigger asymmetries in those two features tended to uh, experience first episode back pain sooner than the people with symmetrically moving hips and symmetric hamstring tensions. Um, but having said that, you know, I've been seeing athletes for over 30 years now, and you recognize the clusters of uh, syndromes around different sports. So uh, here's some common syndromes around cycling and triathletes. It's incredible how many don't get hurt on the bike. They get hurt in the weight room and then it manifests or limits their, their ability to ride well. So they get hurt in the weight room through poor technique uh, or poor programming. Um, for example, they might be squatting or deadlifting, trying to increase leg strength and power with poor form, or they just decide one day they've seen something on the internet and they have a, a very large step input to load. Well, hold on a minute, you know, maybe increase the five or 10% of the load. No, they go on another 50% of the load and the body hasn't had time to adapt to that load and something breaks down, they cross the tipping point. So that might be um, one, but my solution there usually is to uh, replace deadlifting and, and squatting, you know, whether it be a front squat or back squat, where the full load has to go from the shoulders all the way down through the spine to the hips. If we substituted a back squat um, with a belt around the waist, we can really tune the uh, uh, challenge to the legs which cyclists need. Um, you know, they need a stiffened core, but very, very powerful legs. But we can talk about that uh, in, the mo in a moment. Um, but more with cycling, cycling when you measure it is much more a challenge to the thighs. Big load on quadriceps, big load on hamstrings, but not so much gluteal muscles. You know, you see the typical cyclist with frog legs and not necessarily uh, such an impressive or matched uh, gluteal. 
Um, so in that case, a front squat would probably be closer to being on a bike than a, than a, uh, a back squat. But um, all training, yes, it enhances the mechanical and physiological. In other words, bigger leg strength. But we're also training neurology. Uh, uh, back pain and hip pain tends to create an inhibition of the gluteal muscles. Now, Vladimir Yonda, the great Czech neurologist, proposed this, although he never measured it. Well, we assessed a lot of and uh, every single one of them turned out to be true. Not in every person, of course, but certainly in some, except for, for one, but that's, we'll, we'll leave that off to the side now. So he was a brilliant person. Um, but what went along, again, not in everybody, but in some, chronic hip pain, say they have FAI, which would be very common in, in cyclists and, and, and squatters in, in the weight room, and uh, uh, back pain, not only would tend towards gluteal uh, inhibition, but they get psoas uh, facilitation. So Yonda talked about hip flexor facilitation. Well, as we measured it, it wasn't all the flexors. In other words, it wasn't um, rectus, uh, uh, what's the middle high quad here? I'm, I'm having a senior's moment here. Rectus femoris. Yeah. Yeah. Nor was it iliacus. It truly was psoas. Um, and again, some of his techniques to release psoas and reintegrate the gluteals into the squatting. His techniques, as we measured, were, were turned out to be some of the very best. But um, anyway, um, oh, by the way, if I may, who cares whether you have gluteal inhibition? Well, it matters a lot. When you go back to the work of Kara uh, Lewis, uh, who did her PhD with Shirley Saruman and Shirley's work, what they showed is as you extend the hip and if you become gluteal inhibited, the hamstrings take over. So as you extend the hip through extensor uh, torque, the hamstrings pull the femoral head into anterior impingement with a shear. But uh, if you take that same athlete and say put a belt around their knees for the squat and overdrive the gluteal muscles, all of a sudden they say, oh, I can squat deeply and my FAI or the anterior impingement doesn't hurt quite as much. And that's an immediate change because the gluteal muscles, when they drive hip extension, they glide the femoral head posteriorly in the acetabulum away from the FAI. So does it happen uh, and is it effective with everybody? No, of course it depends. But in certain types of uh, hip architectures and that neurology that gets perturbed in some, uh, that would be a, a very important um, consideration. But if we were to go back to that belt squat uh, issue uh, as an example, um, cyclists, as you know, must flex their spine over the bike and they have to get down into the crouch to reduce windage, otherwise you won't win. Um, but you can't replicate it, that in the laboratory. You know, can you imagine a downhill skier getting into the tuck or yeah. a road cyclist and then now let's carry 100 kilos on the back? You know that person is going to use so much training capacity that they will cross the tipping point very, very quickly. But the belt squat removes all of that. And uh, I don't know if now's the time, but uh, I'm just gonna go for a little walk here. 
So uh, you know what I'm just through Backfit Pro HQ. Um, there is where are we now? If I can just set this up, and we've got all kinds of little tricks uh, and machines here. Nice. But this this one is called a um, um, a Squat Max uh, uh, MD, and uh, the athlete would put the uh, uh, belt on, if you can imagine, and uh, connect to the load on the chair. And then as they stood up, we can have front squats, back squats, but all the load. And the nice feature of this uh, uh, belt squat machine, can you still hear me, by the way? Yes. Um, is that the load is free floating. You can see what I mean. So I'm not pulling on a cable. So if I was to squat back, the line or the vector of the cable would be pulling and shearing my body. Whereas the, uh, the reason we use the squat max is the load is always projected down and uh, it, it eliminates a constraint of motion. Anyway, it uh, de-stresses the, uh, the joints or if you're an engineer, you would say you would stop the stress risers and the stress concentration. Back on the uh, studio mics, are we back in uh, business here once again? Yes, we are. Anyway, so there's the first uh, bit on uh, It Depends. Um, another common theme, and I can be short about these, are uh, it has to do with overtraining. Uh, particularly the endurance athletes really fail to let their body adapt. So when you train, uh, it's very questionable how much fitness you're enhancing during the training. It's the training only stimulates adaptation that you enhance while you're resting and fueling up the system. So uh, more attention paid to deloading cycles, training in cycles, peaking and tapering, and really being cognizant of uh, tissue adaptation. Well, that's the only reason why a cyclist would ever come to me is because of back pain. Well, then I have to uh, assess the mechanism of their pain, and that, that can be quite a detailed assessment. But once I know that, uh, I know what tissues I'm dealing with that have to adapt to becoming pain-free. And a bone, uh, for example, that might have an M-plate fracture or a disc that might have a bit of a bulge or uh, perhaps it's muscular, whatever, they will all adapt at different rates. So that really locks me onto a recovery schedule it depends specific to that specific athlete and their mechanism. Um, the third common theme, and this goes with every athlete who comes to me, insufficient core. So, uh, you know, we all hate the word core fitness and this is your core and let's define it. And, and I don't really worry about it. All I'm talking about is, is the spine at this point and, uh, you know, the, 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 the things that are uh, associated with it. But think of this articulated linkage uh, being, uh, well, consider a bike frame. Look how much a cyclist will pay to have a very stiff bike frame. You know, that's what you're paying for, stiffness in the bike frame. So as you apply load to the pedal, if the bike frame torques with each time you push on the pedal, you're leaking energy. 
So you pay for stiffness. Well, the same thing happens in this linkage. Uh, an athlete can spend terrific effort on building big legs, but if their core is wonky, every time they push on the pedal and their spine bends, it's like they might as well have had a, a wonky bike frame. They're yeah. leaking energy, getting force from the hips and knees through the linkage to the handlebars. Well, any point the body contacts the bike, which is the handlebars, the saddle in uh, some cases, and obviously the uh, pedals. So uh, uh, th there's a start anyway on uh, the big three reasons that uh, lead to uh, pain and, and dysfunction in cyclists. And there's a ton to unpack there. And if, if it's okay, we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit. Um, yeah. I'm actually going to start with the number two, which is overtraining. I mean, we used to have years ago, um, that back pain and hip and knee pain uh, were the common complaints of cyclists as well as shoulder pain. Uh, knee pain became number one uh, after uh, a bit more and more popular cycling. And we learned about bike fitting, having to get the angles right on the body, having the, the uh, it's not really the issue of tuberosity that most cyclists sit on. It's the rami that they sit on. Um, so the support there, getting the five points of contact, hand, hand, butt, uh, feet, feet. Um, but really the overtraining and lower back has stuck around. And that's the number one complaint of cyclists as far as pain on the bike is overtraining. And something that I've always believed in, I just never liked um, and I was one of those hard-headed, learn the hard ways. You know, I over, literally overtrained in high school for basketball uh, and had to take essentially four and a half months off from any training. I find that most cyclists and triathletes are doing way too much training, uh, especially long distance. So you mentioned the rest and recovery, the tissue adaptation is not something that most cyclists seem to think about. They're thinking the more I'm on, if I want to be a better cyclist, I need to be out on the bike. And as you, you mentioned in the third point, they're looking to create force, right? But their core is insufficient. So I, it, the light bulb just went off. That's where I heard it. It's from you. I've been telling people for quite some time, uh, force creates motion, but stiffness controls the motion and gives you the ability to propel yourself forward. Because the bike itself, the professionals are only 21 to 23% efficient on the bike, that energy they put forward. But this comes from where is it developed? And this is where the next question is, what do you think about decreasing the training load as a whole on the bike and replacing or, or taking some of it, not all of it, and putting load in the, the weight room? Uh, do you see from a tissue standpoint that this can help uh, build the strength endurance that is needed to help build proper movement patterns and better protect the spine through strength endurance of the posterior chain? What's the answer? It depends. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love this. This is great. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this, this, this is a fabulous conversation to have. So it depends, and every cyclist we're going to give a different answer to, but it doesn't help your listeners. But I can, I can describe for you how I will converge on what that specific cyclist needs versus the next one, both on the bike, uh, total volume of exposure, and in the weight room. So here's where the coach and the athlete become vitally important. Too many experts come in and they'll say, oh, this is what you have to do. Wait a second. It's the coach and the athlete who are the world's expert. I've only seen the person for an hour here. So I work with them, and this will surprise you. 
It's not very sophisticated at all, but very few people miss this. I get out a clipboard, that's clipboard over there on the desk, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll say, write down everything that you need to be the world's best cyclist or tri triathlete or whatever it is, and you write them down. And sometimes they'll, they'll write down things like, you have to be mentally tough. Okay, well, I get that, but that's not something I can help you with. I need it in terms of, I need hip extensor power. There are times when I'm powering up the hill that I actually need hip flexor power. Um, I need, uh, and then I start talking through with them a little bit and I say, what about foot stiffness? And they'll say, what do you mean? And I'll say, well, that's why you have a very stiff sole in your cycling shoe to take the energy leak from the flexibility in your foot that you need to run in the triathlon, but it's a detriment for you on the bike. Yeah. Or can you imagine swimming with a stiff foot in a triathlon? You're yeah. not going anywhere. You need to be a floppy fish. So we're going to have conversations about that in a few minutes, I suspect. Yes. But do you see how much fun this is? And even the coaches haven't thought this through in terms of very specific elements of athleticism. What does that cyclist need? So it's an exercise where I force them to really come up with uh, very specific strengths, stiffnesses, flexibilities, and non-flexibilities, uh, endurances, tissue resilience, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All things that we can train. So they have to define those now in trainable English. And then I'll say, all right, here are all the things that you as an expert in cycling, because that's not my expertise. Uh, I'm, I'm just a back pain guy. Uh, now we're going to measure all of these in you. Well, I'm pretty good at coming up with ways to measure all of those things. Then I'll, uh, the third column is, let's say you need, um, well, whatever it is, say just hip extensor power. Okay, is it sufficient? If it is sufficient, I check it off in the third column. If it's insufficient, guess what? That goes into the training schedule. And then uh, the next one might be core stiffness. Do they have sufficient core stiffness? Because you just told me you needed that to stop the energy leak on the bike. It's particularly evident up. Your weak part of your game is powering up a hill. Why is that all your great leg power, you can't get to the bike frame because you're leaking through your core, particularly in the last half of the, of the, the whatever it is. So uh, I know how to measure, uh, measure that. Then we look at the third column and say, you know, you need this in the first column, but we measured it and you have it. Don't worry about training it. You're sufficient. So now we focus on the things that you need, that you don't have, and there it is. Now the, the final bit is let's go choose a tool out of our toolbox in, in the strength and conditioning world that we can enhance that for you as an individual, and that's the art of it and for you and your sport. So, you know, we talked about the belt squad as, as a tool specifically for uh, cyclists. So that's how I get to the answer. Um, but it, 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 that answer might be different. If we had three cyclists, we might have uh, three different programs and, and that's, that's my world. But um, anyway, there's, there's a start on that.
And I think you hit on, on something that I've seen. And of course, we only know the sample size that, that we see and every athlete is a study of one. Um, the hip extensor, technically, when we, when we look at the glutes and the pedaling, we all think of cyclists as having large developed quads. There was an EMG study done a while ago and uh, Serata Institute or International Cycling Institute who uh, developed the bike fit um, approaches we now base off of did a study and found that either you know somewhere between 33 and 35 percent of your pedaling power should come from the glutes but that as as yonda would call it the gluteal amnesia uh, or the inability to fire the glute as an extensor is very prevalent which leads to the quadriceps to becoming uh more dominant and then we have the psoas and the iliacus which i, I if i'm not mistaken they're not the iliopsoas two completely different muscles. They just happen to attach one on top of the other. But um, we also see a decrease in the ability of the internal obliques to fire in a lot of cyclists. Have you seen that in, in any studies that you've done or, or that you're aware of? Uh, where uh, the no, I have, I have not noticed an internal oblique specificity. However, uh, I uh, have seen this dominance of the hamstring muscle for uh, hip extension at the expense of full gluteal power. And I think the mechanism is more neurological than anything. For some reason, cycling, just every cycle programs that engram, which is the firing pattern uh, in the brain that, that executes the movement. That engram just becomes so strong for more uh, hamstrings uh, that uh, the more the stronger it becomes, the stronger it becomes, and I don't know what more I can say about that. So when you take a group of cyclists versus a group of sprinters, let's take those two athletes, and I have measured this um, to to change a cyclist's engram. So this is neurological training now. It's mm -hmm. not not physiological or biomechanical. It's neurological. Um, to get their gluteal muscles back into priority in that engram uh, is, is very, very difficult. And I will say almost impossible in some very highly trained cyclists. So we'll do a back bridge, for example, and give them all the coaching cues of how to squeeze the glutes, add a little bit of knee external rotation, push away the, the toes uh, when they're on the ground, uh, and really focus on driving that hip extensor movement entirely with the, the gluteal muscles. It is, as I've said, pretty much impossible with big, heavy-thighed elite cyclists. They can't do it. Um, but, you know, my answer to that is uh, let's deal with the mechanisms of their back pain, and that's the uh, that's what we're going to have to live with them because they are elite cyclists. And, and you know, I m m use the analogy of, of different animals. Uh, you know, a dog is a dog until you try and train a St. Bernard to win at the Greyhound track. It's not possible. You will break that dog in doing so. But the Greyhound will never carry the loads up a mountain the way a, uh, a, a St. Bernard will. So, you know, you, you have to admit some of these things and uh, just I'm going to uh, start that uh, particular uh, discussion. You, you try and create what you can. 
And do you think that, you know, I'm, what I'm hearing and thinking as I'm listening to you is that this is one of those common uh, sport dysfunctions, essentially, where the sport is uh, allowing or, or uh, enabling or you need to enable a little bit of a dysfunction or in this case, a large dysfunction in order to be successful? Or is this a sample to sample, you know, we, have, we would have to do a study to look and see is that engram uh, dysfunction common or is it just specific individuals? Well, that is a fantastic insight and one that I would love to uh, uh, tackle. Um, is it really a dysfunction? Uh, I, I don't know if we would call it that. If it's, a, if it's a feature of some of the great cyclists, then I don't know if I would call it a dysfunction. Um, you know, when I measure it, what some gymnasts do and what they're able to do versus what would be considered normal among the population, certainly not dysfunctional for them in their sport. But um, having said that, what I would then say, what is dysfunctional? I would watch that or measure that cyclist start fresh. So say they are a middle distance uh, cyclist. Um, so they, they, they need both power uh, or they might be, uh, you know, some sort of, not, not a tour de, well, yes, let, even, even take a, a grueling race like a Tour de France, for example. So they're riding hills, um, but by the third hill, their form has changed. They're broken because of fatigue. Now, if in that fatigue set, they become even more dysfunctional, I would say that's a problem and that's something that we could uh, address in training. So if that was the case, I might consider something like, uh, have you ever tried to walk backwards up a steep hill? Yeah. It's, yeah, so you do monster walks, you push through the knee, through the knee, through the knee, and even the most accomplished cyclists will say, oh, I have a tremendous fatiguing burn in my quadriceps. And I'll say, good. Now I'll go back down to the bottom of the hill. And then all of a sudden they'll say, wow, I just felt my brain switch. Your brain sees the quadriceps being exhausted, but now you have to, you've changed the demand parameter and they have to get the hip extension. They can't get it through their knees anymore. Their knees and quads are screaming. So the brain then goes and gets the glutes. So there would, might be a trick for those athletes who change form because of fatigue. That's fantastic. You know, I, I just, we just had uh, Lee Taft on uh, the other day. He's a speed and an agility oh, guy. I, I know Lee well. Yeah, so we just had him on. And uh, it's funny because I've been using the back, without knowing that he was doing this, I, he, I've been using the backpedaling down into a low squat, but as soon as you said the hill, I'm like, light bulb, of course, because you pre-fatigue, the brain's going to activate another large muscle group, which extends, which is the glutes. Now you've just created a, a very powerful engram to combat the fatigue-induced dysfunction, as you called it, but I would just say the coach was well, just I'm, unaware I'm of that. The dysfunction I'm thinking of is more for the average cyclist because we know that the best in the sport have some for some kind of uh, we would consider it a dysfunction outside of the sport, but it allows them to get to those elite levels. They have to have that. That's part of their magic, so to speak, of getting there and why there are so f a few, few uh, Chris Frooms or, you know, these athletes that are winning over and over again is because they are a specimen that is one in uh, 300 million or whatever it may be for that sport. 
but I'm thinking and specifically for today, like the, the high performance fascinates me and I could talk with you all day about that. Um, but I, I want to talk with you all day about that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Stu, all the years I've been listening to your, your podcast, I haven't heard much about cycling. When you presented in New Rochelle, you had a picture of Greg Lamont and I perked up and you just mentioned cyclists are a beast of another kind and then kind of went on. I was, you know, it's something that's so aberrant, I would say, yet so needed uh, to learn about uh, the dysfunctions or, or issues in cyclists and creating back pain because that is the leading cause of pain on the bike. Is there a specific reason? Is it just not as prevalent? It's a special. Well, you know, when people ask me to come and do a course, uh, you know, it might be only one or two or maybe three days long. Uh, usually there aren't too many people in the room who are that interested in cycling. But a funny thing has happened. I would say years ago, I really didn't get that many cyclists as patients. Uh, but recently, what I've been getting are uh, cycling teams coming to me saying, we have two members or three members that are really disabled and unable to train because of back injury. Can you help us? So I certainly have become much more aware, I would say, just in the last uh, few years. Um, anyway, maybe uh, I, I should ask around a bit. Oh, do you want to hear about cyclists? <laughs> no, I this is something, this is kind of, uh, you know, this is where I'd like to put my feather in the hat for strength training for cycling is bringing it to people and helping them get, uh, understand what's going on. And I guess that can kind of lead to our second question here. And that is, you know, common sense, as they say, uh, approaches are commonly mistaken or, or built on poor or absolutely no understanding of how the body really actually works. Um, what would you say are the top two or three myths or mistakes that we see um, when common sense comes into play for spine and, and back health for cyclists and triathletes? Okay. I don't know if you threw that curve at me on purpose or not, but we're, we're, we're uh, a cyclist is an entirely different animal from a triathlete. So let's, can we start with that distinction? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Well, um, let's consider the first leg of the triathlon, which, triathlon, which is uh, the water, which is swimming. To be a swimmer, and I have consulted with literally some of the top swimmers of all time. Uh, I remember having a woman who had the record for her country in freestyle. She could hardly do a push-up. Now you ask yourself, what is, I remember saying to her, how can you, now she had back pain, obviously, because she came to see me, but I said, what makes you so fast in the pool? And it was really, really hard for her to articulate that. And I thought, isn't that strange that an athlete doesn't even understand their own athleticism and how on earth could they be specific in their training when they don't understand what it is? So the only tool they have is to swim more. So she was just this natural phenom that somehow knew how to swim. But when you break it down, the best swimmers that are human are fish. They have big floppy feet with no stiffness so they can actually turn themselves into a fish. I mean, I couldn't butterfly stroke to save my life um, because of the amazing double whip that you yeah. need to create along the linkage. So uh, now let's consider 
Um, well, I, I, I th this might upset a few people if I, if I talk about the transference of athleticism, because I say swimmers are usually one-trick ponies. And what I mean by that is yeah. they're very good in the pool, but put them on the basketball court and ball player, and they can run, they can jump, they can change direction, they can create big forces, they can be quick. A swimmer doesn't have that dexterity and uh, depth to their athleticism when you put them in gravity. But in a pool, they're a fish. You reminded me of uh, when I worked at Pitt as an intern for the strength and conditioning department, there was one of the top swimmers in the country. And I remember walking in and looking at him and I went up to, to Kim uh, King, who was uh, running the weight room at the time. And I said to her, who's the freshman? And she said, freshman, he's a senior. He's our best swimmer. And like the kid's not coordinated. And she said, go watch him in the water. And exactly what you said, he's like a fish, it, but literally fish out of water. Like right. can't move, poor coordination. Yes. Well, anyway, um, now let's look at the uh, uh, triathlete competition. So the swimmers, look who comes first out of the water. They're the best swimmers. You'll almost wet yourself laughing watching them run. The first out of the pool very rarely wins the triathlon because those are the soft, flexible uh, fish, but they can't run and they can't exert force on a bike. The ones who win the triathlon are the, come out of the pool middle so that they can make up from the fast swimmers, but the ones that come last out of the, the, the water, they're so far behind that they can't make it up. So it's so interesting. When you look at this, I, I've already talked about the contrast of what you need to run and, you know, to swim, you need a floppy foot and a floppy ankle. To run on a bike, you take all the stiffness out of your foot to exert mat with zero energy leak what you develop in your thigh, hip and knee and get it to the pedal. But the runner is now a tuned elastic machine. In other words, they're a kangaroo. The best runners, I don't know if you can see that, but they, they pre-tune the stiffness. They can't be lax. They have to turn on their muscles so when they strike, there is a certain uh, uh, um, elongation of a spring, and then they add a muscle pulse onto that loaded spring, and then they push off for the next uh, phase of the gait cycle. So the very best runners have tuned elasticity and they store and recover elastic energy. The ones that stretch it all the way have to use far too much eccentric, concentric muscle uh, force development, which costs energy. And of course, uh, in a long duration race like a triathlon, it's a disaster. So there's just an example of how all of those athletes are very different animals um, and, and you have to tune them. So given that, um, the, 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 the trick is the, is the transition. Uh, what, what can you do for them? Um, what I would do with a swimmer who doesn't have stiffness is I would give them stiffness training. Uh, do you remember that nervous kid in school? I don't know if you can see this, but they drive you nuts bouncing their, their toe on the ground <laughs> like this. Well, that is called the foot ricochet. That is creating an engram of stiffness. So if you make your leg too stiff, it doesn't get any reaction off the floor. If you make it too lax like a swimmer, it just plops into the ground and doesn't get any push off. But when you pre-activate the muscles and tune it very precisely, you create a spring. And there it is. It just bounces along with minimal muscular input. 
So you're storing, recovering elastic energy. So there would be uh, a trick. So, so ask a swimmer to jump rope and then really stiffen the body and really learn to boing, boing. It's called a pogo. Uh, yeah. And really optimize the pogo and then do it. Boom. And this is what tunes the stiffness uh, in the body to transition the neurology of a swimmer over to a runner, perhaps. So training the transition is uh, a big deal for, um, uh, well, you said a common sense approach. It's, it's not really that common. Yeah. Uh, uh, so anyway, there's, uh, there's another thought. Um, all the core uh, myths, uh, when I look at, uh, say, uh, injury clusters, in, in swimmers and triathletes. Generally speaking, cyclists, in terms of their back, are joint instability and disc bulges. So the disc bulge uh, is usually caused by inappropriate training in the weight room, not necessarily on the bike, but what happens is the injury is caused in the weight room and now that becomes a problem on the bike. Riding a bike in of itself is not really a potent uh, disc injury mechanism. So if I can just stand up and show uh, this mechanism, uh, what happens if you repeatedly flex the spine under heavy load? So I'm not talking about sitting, slouching, or anything like that. But they get too greedy with deep squats, too heavy, too soon. Mm -hmm. Now, if I flex the spine, you'll see that red mark in the back. Yeah. And if I flex it and then uh, flex it and then squeeze it, you see the disc mm -hmm. right, right out. Mm -hmm. This comes from dynamicdiscdesigns.com. They've made these models exactly what we've documented over the years. Um, but now watch, I'm going to squeeze the spine, but I'm not going to allow any flexion. You see the disc bulges, but nothing comes out of the mm -hmm. fissure. So that fissure is a delaminated collagen. This is not a ball and socket joint. Right. Those fibers, if you keep moving them under high pressure, they work themselves loose and they slowly delaminate. And then if I can just show with my fingers, they work apart with the mobility and then the nuclear gel slowly works its way through the fissure. So you need a lot of motion and high load. Uh, if you don't have those two, that particular uh, injury won't happen. But interestingly enough, those often start the athlete will report, oh, I deadlifted too heavy. Well, what deadlifting can do is it disrupts the end plate and then the fibers of the collagen uh, where they connect uh, to the bone, those are called Sharpies fibers and they pull off the bone at the micro level. You can't see this on MR. We have to use other instrumentation to measure it, but it's there. You know, there's many people who say, oh, the injury isn't showed on MRI. No kidding. But when you use the techniques that we've been using, the injuries are almost always there if you know what to look for at the level of the tissue damage. But as those Sharpies fibers weakening give way, the collagen fibers then delaminate and, and cause uh, such things. So there might be one common uh, injury pathway for uh, someone who, not a triathlete or a cyclist, but darn it, they cause that in the weight room.
So can I, can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Um, through your studies and a couple other uh, professionals in, uh, in the research the last couple of decades, we found that the role of the discs in the back is not what we thought where it's the shock absorbers. The, the arteries in the spine actually don't have any, uh, sorry, the veins in the uh, spine don't have any valves, which doesn't allow, uh, it allows the blood to ebb and flow kind of within and act as uh, that cushion. Can, can we talk a little bit about the, the discs themselves and their role? Is that correct? Well, yes, it is. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's a fairly lengthy uh, discussion. I'm just trying to see if I have the best model for that. Let me just give me one second. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking of the person watching at home because the prevalent thought is that the disc is what acts as a shock absorber, and that is not in, well, in, in, in case the yes, fact. Yes and no. Um, so you can see there are two discs. Mm -hmm. top vertebra, the top has been sawn off. So we're going to look at the end plate, which is mm -hmm. the top and bottom of the disc. So if you squeeze a disc, yes, it flattens a bit. But what most people don't realize is the top and bottom of the vertebrae is more a cartilaginous plate. So I'm going to squeeze this now and squeeze the nuclear gel inside the disc. Can you see it coming up through the fracture in the yep. end plate? Mm -hmm. so yep. This happens with excessive load. Say the person is deadlifting far beyond their capacity. So a deadlift, if it's below their capacity, will build them and stimulate tissue adaptation. But when they cross that tipping point, something will, will go. Now, can you see this on an MRI? Pro occasionally, if you know what you're looking for, but most radiologists yeah. uh, would, would miss this. So again, you know, I hate to hear these criticisms that, oh, the uh, damage isn't seen on an MRI, therefore the damage doesn't exist. No, that's a grave mistake. Yeah. But anyway... The, the, there is, you can see the shock absorption inside the vertebra, right. the bones are leaf springs mm -hmm. and the, the vertical trabeculae actually spring like a leaf spring. And what you were talking about, if you look at the shock absorber on a car or a, or a motorcycle, it's a coil spring around a piston in a, uh, a cylinder. And so the elastic part is in the bone, the, the, the spring trabeculae, the leaf springs, and the oil in the cylinder bit, which is the viscous damper, um, it's in the blood inside the vertebral body. And what we've shown, if, if you uh, look at our videos, when you squeeze a vertebra rapidly, the bone inside pressurizes the blood. Now that blood squirts out through the sinuses for the arteries and veins. But uh, if it's too rapid, it causes a burst fracture. The pressure inside the vertebra gets so high it explodes the bone. You don't explode the disc, right. you explode the bone. Right. So that is the uh, shock absorbing mechanism, uh, at least the failure mechanism in most. And I think that's important for the, the, the listeners because I've, I still see cycling coaches who mean well. They do, they do a nice anatomical adaptation of body weight or, 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 or very, very light weights for four to six weeks. But then they have their cyclists go and do a one rep max back squat. Now, granted, truth be told, neurologically, it's, it's not a real one rep max. But have the tissues had time to adapt to that, um, where the bones are able to bear that force, especially that, that, uh, that down force, uh, 
for the well the... I, I would submit that is so crude and um, uh, I think we're one of the few people who have quite a high success rate in rebuilding power lifters who have done that type of damage to the bones. And we use a technique called bone callusing. So this was documented in our recent book called Gift of Injury. Yeah. And I show how Brian Carroll came in with, with a very heavy split fracture in his sacrum. And L5 was very heavily uh, damaged and fractured. Um, but he took a year to bone callus those bones through very dedicated training, which is a five-day cycle of load, and you take five days off, and you allow the bone, the new bone, to scaffold in. Um, but that, you know, that can be a ten-minute discussion on yeah. the physics of bone callusing. But nonetheless, uh, you're right. But no, that's they, they, what they're believing is: oh, damage to tissue heals in six to twelve weeks. Well, it might if it's a muscle, but it won't if it's connective tissue, and for darn sure it won't if it's uh, an end plate of a vertebra in your spine. A long bone, you might break a leg, and within three months, that person's right back cycling and heavy squatting, but you won't do that with an end plate in, right. a, uh, in, in, a, in a vertebra. So they're very, very different. You know, so injuries are very, very specific and they need very specific stimuluses. And here we can have a, a big discussion, although I don't think you really want to, on mechanostimulation. And the mechanostimulation, every tissue in your body responds to load. If the load is below the tipping point, it's an anabolic response, it builds. If the load exceeds the tipping point, it's catabolic and cumulative trauma builds up. And if you don't rest, you're going to have a, a much bigger uh, issue. And the rest is important, but we, one of the things I think people miss with back and spine, and this was an eye-opening for me, and, and I'm sorry, I know we're still on the, the common sense approach, but uh, the fact that there's a, a U-shape to the loading for the tissues of the spine, there's too little and too much. And I think that a lot of cyclists, like you said, the injuries happen in the weight room because they go from next to low you know, they have a lot of shearing force from being in that, that crouched or, or wind position and then trying to put a bar on their back or deadlift off the floor. So they go from zero to 100, but there's no uh, small dosage of loading throughout the year where, you know, maybe a kettlebell deadlift uh, off of a block where it's off, off the floor where they can activate and feel the tension and actually activate the muscles properly will uh, allow us to load small enough increments consistently enough that when it comes for the transition period, they can actually load the back. Would you think that's a, a smart approach to, uh, and of course it depends, but. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> I, yeah. And the whole time, like truth be told, I, the whole time I'm like, I'm asking him a question because I know that's what's expected, but I know the answer is it depends, but I'm curious. Um, so what if, I hope is one day we can have a cyclist athlete here and work together uh, and we noodle our way through a a consult um, and uh, see how we converge on measuring the precise mechanism of why they're in pain and then eliminating that cause. Forget about weight training or resistance training, get rid of the cause. Yeah. And then we've created capacity to start training and then we organize a very clever program to address that per and honor that person's injury history and bring them along in a, in a very wise way. And that's the art and science of what 
you know, makes mastery in all of this. Yeah. That's it for this episode. Check out humanvortextraining.com for more great content and to keep learning.